You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Paco DeLeon, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Each person in every generation has had their shit sandwich. So says my guest today, and I have to agree... For me, it started as a little boy when I was relentlessly taunted and unfriended because my religion was rare in my small part of town. After that, it was the sudden death of my father when I was seven years old. Yet, yet, I also grew up in a world of extraordinary privilege and good fortune. My gender, my race, and my sexual orientation were all not only accepted, but bolstered. I was born to upper-class parents who understood money, saving, side hustles, and building businesses. I was loved and cherished. My shit sandwich was highly seasoned and, dare I say, palatable. Maybe this makes me unique. Maybe my view of money and finance is for the exclusive, the well-bred, the extra-ordinary. If so, there must also be information for the rest, a way to move ahead, a way to make it not just exclusive, but in fact, inclusive finance for the people. Paco de Leon is author of Finance for the People and the in-house finance expert for Refinery29 magazine. She co-hosts their finance podcast, Money Diaries, and runs a bookkeeping agency for over 40 multi-six-figure creative businesses, Paco de Leon, welcome to Earn and Invest. I'm going to start with a quote from your book. You say, I didn't write this book because of my white hot passion for personal finance. In fact, I don't have a white hot passion for personal finance. What I do care about is helping people connect to their personal power. Let's talk about that relationship between money and power. How important are they and do they always go together? I think for a lot of us, money and power definitely go together. I think money is certainly a proxy for power in the modern world. Let's go back to your beginnings. Did you feel powerless at the beginning of your financial journey? Most certainly. I feel I felt like a lot of my experience uh, being in this world has been adapting to a place that wasn't built for me because it was built by people who are pretty much the opposite of me, right? I stand at a staggering five foot zero. So if we even start with that alone, <laughs> in the US, right, the way that they figure out table heights and counter heights and chair heights, they used 
army data from like back in the day. So that's typically a soldier is going to be like a, 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 a white male, right? Who's going to be much bigger than me. So literally the world I'm inhabiting, the counters I'm reaching for, the, the, or the, the cabinets I'm reaching for, the counters where I'm chopping vegetables, th- that world is not built for me, right? So we just start on that alone, right? L- then we look at the other aspects of my identity. I'm a woman in a man's world, a queer person in a straight world. And I'm a brown person in a white world. So I've definitely felt like power was not just handed to me. But just like you, I do find where I'm privileged, right? I happen to be able to understand the world of finances. I have an incredibly high threshold for tolerating the the like how mundane and boring this world can be, right? In order to digest it and to and to understand it, I have that privilege and i think i'm pretty clever and quite creative and all of those things have given me a way to navigate a world that i have felt like is not built for me so you the creative clever person who's feeling powerless at the beginning of their journey why go into personal finance of all things <laughs> i didn't really think about it honestly I was studying in college, doing my undergrad, and I needed to pick something. Like the clock was ticking and time was running out. And I had been playing music a lot since I was like 15 or 16, playing in bands. And I was kind of looking at two things. It was like, should I study art and be a professional creative? Or should I do something that's like, quote unquote, practical? And given the fact that my parents are both immigrants and I'm the oldest, I felt like I really needed to choose something that was like a solid fallback. And when I looked at the options, I thought, okay, business seems pretty like safe. I'll probably always work for a business, which means I'll always be employable. And that's really how I did the calculus on that decision. Then when you get into the business classes, you have to choose a concentration and i was really good at i was really good at figuring out how to get an a with the least amount of work mm-hmm. and in particular i thought that that skill set would lend itself to finance um i was also really honestly i was really intrigued that a bunch of people who didn't seem that smart were making a ton of money right this is around 2006 so hindsight is 2020 we understand kind of what was happening there and so I chose, I just blindly jumped into finance. And today my career looks amazing, right? I look like a genius. I wrote a book. I'm catering to creatives. I seem very happy and fulfilled because I am. I get to make content. I get to have interesting conversations. But but getting to this point was like shining a turd, frankly. I had to look at what my skill set was. I had to look at what community I belonged to and figure out a way to navigate that so that I would enjoy my life, right? Instead of just feeling like I was powerless, instead of just feeling like, oh, all of these circumstances are pushing me to do something, where are the ways that I could push back? We talk about this idea of powerlessness and how you felt growing up. I equate that with outsider status. When you entered the world of finance, did you still feel like an outsider? And if you did, how did you grow into that? I 100% felt like an outsider in particular, the financial planning firm that I ended up working for, I started um, I started as an executive assistant. 
So I started on the admin side. And one day it dawned on me, I looked up and I was like, oh, all of the admin people are women of color. And that's interesting that that's the positions that this company sees us for. Um, all the other folks who were like higher level, they were all they were all white or they all shared the last name of the owner of the company. And so that was eye-opening for me. Um, definitely, there were definitely not, not any queer people at that firm. So I definitely felt like I was an outsider. And when I finally approached my boss and I said, hey, I... I want to be a financial planner. You've told me, my boss, my my boss has told me, my boss at the time told me, whatever it is, you have it in terms of like being able to sell, being able to have conversations with people about money. And he finally was like, Yeah, let's let's put you on track to become a financial planner. But instead of just promoting me to financial planner, I had to do this like junior stepping stone of junior financial planner. And then I was the only woman who was a financial planner. And at the end of the year, they had a guy's night out with all the clients. So all of the male financial planners would go out with all the male clients. And then there was this awkward moment where I was just not involved. So like that's a very on the nose experience where I felt excluded. But just the regular day to day, right, where these financial planners had a built in network because they grew up in Los Angeles, or they grew up with a certain class of people who could afford financial planning. And here I am being like, why did I, why did I actually choose this? Because this is actually harder for me to do. I don't, I didn't grow up with people who inherited a million dollars who I could just hit them up and say, Hey, you know, come and work with me and let's see what happens. When you talk about your experiences there, what I definitely hear is this idea of exclusivity, right? There was an exclusivity to this information, to this knowledge that growing up the way you did, part of the communities you were part of, you didn't have that information. You also say in your book, just to be clear, I'm not sharing what I've learned from the perspective of someone in the financial industry who benefits from it and wants to maintain the status quo. Fuck the status quo. This book is about setting information free. Why do you suppose that information isn't free already? Like, you experienced this. You were going through this. It seemed like everyone had this information, but you didn't. Why isn't it just out there? I think there's a lot of reasons why that information is not out there. I think one of the most pervasive ideas, a very common theme that all of us have experienced is this concept that we shouldn't talk about money, right? That it's gauche or it's improper or it's rude. It's all of these different things depending on where you come from. And I think that alone is like a blanket that everyone has been wrapped in, right? We all have learned, especially like in our workplace, which is the most comical to me. Like that's the most comical thing is at the workplace, we're all there for money, period. <laughs> at the end of the day, if they said, we're not going to pay you anymore. You would for surely stop going to work. But that's the one thing we can't talk about. And that to me is hilarious. And so I think I think that permeates our culture, that permeates our society. And since we're starting from there, we're already kind of starting, uh, you know, behind. We're, we're not open about having money conversations. So we take that and we combine it with just not having access to that information. And it's a really interesting cocktail. <laughs> 
It reminds me, you make the point in your book, you say that one of the main universal financial truths is that we're all weird about money. And like you said, it's kind of gauche to talk about money. We normally don't do that. Why is why are money conversations so weird and why are we so strange when it comes to having these kind of straightforward basic conversations? I think there's a lot of reasons why we might be weird about money. And if I try to go to some of these like kernels of universal truth, what astonishes me is that money at the end of the day is a shared societal delusion. And for so many of us, for all of us, money is whatever you believe it is. If it's the greatest force in the world in your mind, it is going to be the greatest force in the world. If you grew up with a family who didn't have a lot and they don't emphasize money and they say things like money is nothing, money might be nothing to you. And then your behavior and your approach to it is really going to be so colored by that one little story that got told over and over and over. And that's what's really fascinating to me about money is it inherently has no value, yet so much of our behaviors, so much of our lives are dedicated to acquiring this thing because it's this like fascinating duality where money is nothing and money is everything. You know, it's what other thing in the world is like that. You talk about these stories we tell ourselves and that makes me think a lot about financial trauma and some of those money scripts that are passed on from generation to generation. Talk about your own financial trauma. Do you remember some of those stories you were brought up with about money and, and what it's supposed to mean to you? Yeah, I grew up with some like interesting dichotomies in my household because my mom has always been, my mom's one of those fascinating creatures who got like her first job at this dermatologist's office at a young age. I want to say probably before I was born. So she was, you know, before 26. And fast forward to today, she's still working with that same doctor. And there was like one little bump in the road where the doctor sold the practice, but then he opened up his own practice. So there was this like one moment where my mom wasn't working for the same company due to circumstance, but she's still working with this guy. And so we're looking at like a 35, 40 year career where she gets up every day and she does the same thing and she loves her job and she's a hard worker. And, and she has these very middle-class beliefs, right? That you should get a secure job that, uh, well, that, that a job is security, which to me, over the years, I've had to rewrite that belief or learn to unlearn that belief. Um, and then we have like my dad, who was always really, he's like a skeptical guy. He's always thinking about money as uh, a nefarious motivator, right? He would say things like, oh, you know, mixing friends and money is not a good thing. Or, you know, you shouldn't let people borrow money. You shouldn't let family borrow money, things like that. And so I feel like my mom has this like very wholesome idea of like work hard and good things will come to you and believe in security. And then my dad has these narratives of like, you know, money, money corrupts you and it's bad. And when you think about mixing money with, you know, things that should be pure of money, bad things will happen. And so I do have this like kind of double perspective of money. I have spent a lot of time, of course, my book is really, really pushes the reader to spend time with their own thoughts, right? Catching their own thoughts when they say things like, oh, I'm broke or I can't afford that or people like me, 
people like me don't have wealth, people like me don't invest. And so just and so for me, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about those things as well. I think a lot about financial traumas. You obviously have thought quite a bit about it and have become intentional about working through some of those traumas. How do people start that process? Because I find that if you're lucky enough as a person to be introspective enough to figure out what those financial traumas are, a lot of times we have trouble undoing them, even if we can identify them. I think that many roads lead to the same destination and everybody's journey to healing their trauma is going to be their own journey. Um, So with that caveat, I'm happy to explain how I arrived at where I'm at because the Paco of today is not afraid to feel her feelings. The Paco of today, you know, really tries to be mindful and intentional, but I was not always that way. For me, I started a meditation practice like haphazardly probably around 10 years ago. I was working at the financial planning firm. I was starting to read about how other people live their lives. And I was curious about meditation. There was some correlation between people who were like kind of kicking ass at life, right? And having a meditation practice. So I wanted to know who will I become if I do that? So I started just sitting quietly. Sometimes I would use a timer. Sometimes I would use like a a YouTube guided meditation. And meditation taught me like the very first principle that was really important for me in my journey. And that is you are not your thoughts. You don't have to hold onto them so tightly and identify with them. They can just be what they are. Then after that, I started talk therapy. And that main lesson there was it's okay to feel your feelings. Like you're not going to die if you feel your feelings. And people will still love you if you if you feel your feelings and talk about your feelings and you confront them and you tell them that you're disappointed or you're hurt. People will still love you, right? Those are the lessons that I learned. I learned that there were limitations to talk therapy. You learn how to unpack your feelings and to address them. And I think that's important for people who might be emotionally stunted like I was. But they don't really teach you how to move forward. And I did not learn how to like heal my wounds until I started exploring weirder things. One of the weird things I explored was coaching. So in like 2018... A stranger on the internet reached out to me. Her name is Jenny Stevens, and she's my literary agent. And she emailed me and said, hey, I think you should write a book. Or, hey, hey, do you have a book in you? Your perspective is really unique, and I think people would resonate with it. We got on a call. I ended up signing with her. And she quickly is like, here's five examples of how to write a book proposal. You know, can you turn it in in six months or three months or whatever? And before this, I was writing furiously. I mean, furiously writing, not thinking, being very unprecious with my writing. And suddenly I was blocked. Suddenly I was terrified to write an outline. It's really, it ends up being like 50 pages, but it's really not that much work. It's just an idea fleshed out and I couldn't do it. And so I thought, hmm, something is holding you back and you don't know what. It's like in your periphery and you can't see it. 
So let's hire a coach. So I hired a coach. Her name is Kristen Sargent. And Kristen, I thought I thought we we're going to do very practical things. I honestly, naively thought I would go to her house. She would set a timer. She would say, okay, you will, you shall write. And then, I don't know, she would like act like a Catholic school nun and like hit my fingers with a ruler. I didn't really think that. But, you know, I thought there would be some some fear mongering that would happen. That's not what, what happened at all. She introduced me to Carl Jung's uh, theory about our shadow selves. Our shadow self is made up of all these parts of ourselves that we reject. And we reject those parts of ourselves in order to belong to a family, to a group, to society. She made me find this part of myself, my shadow self. And she taught me how to reintegrate that rejection, those rejected parts back into my life. So that was one really big weird thing that really changed everything for me. I felt like after I started to do that work, I really healed all these core wounds. And for me, the big, big, big one was you are not enough. And I got that because I think being who, all of this, who I am, in a world that wasn't built for me, I always felt like, okay, you got to be funny. You got to be smart. You got to work twice as hard for half as much, all of those things. And when I finally healed those wounds, I could start to move forward and I could start to find my agency. And then one of the the other two kind of weird things that I do, one thing is less weird. I do journaling. I think that helps for a lot of people. It just kind of vomiting out your feelings onto a page, vomiting out your thoughts, because then you can kind of look back and look at them a little bit more objectively, right? They're not inside of you. You're not like high on your emotions. You you let them out and then you can kind of create distance from them. Um, and then the last thing I've been working on lately is some self-hypnosis, which has been interesting. And it's kind of like the shadow work. It's another way to kind of go right beneath the conscious surface into the subconscious and to start to explore who am I here? Like, what are these stories and these ideas that are like seeds that got buried into my mind, took root, and now they're they're showing the world, you know, this is who I am. Like, can I can I unroot them? Can I weed out things? Can I replant what I want to replant? And so, so much of my adulthood, so much of this personal finance stuff has prompted me to explore who I am. We're talking about previous financial traumas and how they get in the way of us doing the things we want. In the case of your book, building a stable financial future, building wealth. Some people would argue, they would look at all this and say, okay, you know, this is great. You're looking at your own personal responsibility, but there's another storyline here. Some people will say, and in fact, I think your book references this idea that, you know, especially for some people, everything is stacked against them, right? There is more than just personal responsibility going on here. There is societal and political change that could improve things also. And you address this, and let me quote you here. You say that even if things could be equal, we'd all still face different problems because life is a shit show. Misfortune is real, really real. And since I don't have any experiences where I felt I could rely on government or on any other institution to fight for my share of fare, I've come to believe that part of being empowered is accepting that we can't expect that someone is coming to save us. You know, I find it an interesting dichotomy, right? Because on some level, you are the perfect example of someone who didn't fit into all the stereotypes 
And so that suggests that there is some systemic change that maybe it's not you, it's the system that is having problems. On the other hand, you argue here very clearly that personal responsibility is what at least you've chosen to rely on. Tell me about that dichotomy. I think to live on earth is to exist in dualities. I think the whole damn experience of being a human on earth is to sit in that tension and we see it everywhere, right? Like love and loss and it's everywhere. And to learn how to hold those two opposing viewpoints in our minds at the same time, I think that's going to allow us to navigate all sorts of balls of wax. Like one common one I see in the world of personal finance, especially with the audience that I speak to is they want to be ethical. They don't want to just burn down the planet earth, but they want to care about the future and they want to invest. And so how do you like, what is the phrase? How do you square that circle? I don't have the the answer. I don't think anybody has the answer of how do you square those circles? I think part of our whole exploration of navigating how to be humans on this planet is to understand how to sit with those dichotomies. We are talking to Paco de Leon. She is the in-house finance expert for Refinery29 magazine. She co-hosts their finance podcast, Money Diaries, and runs a bookkeeping agency for over 40 multi-six-figure creative businesses. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. 
But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Paco de Leon. She's the author of Finance for the People. Paco, you introduce in your book something called the Pyramid of Financial Awesomeness. Tell us what that is and how you use it in the book. The Pyramid of Financial Awesomeness is basically our guide to the universe of personal finance. It is my attempt to take something that feels expansive and crazy and nebulous and messy like an ever-expanding universe and to boil it down into like a 50,000 foot field guide. Each level of the pyramid represents each chapter in the book and each brick is a concept and the concepts are both going to be theoretical uh, but they're also going to give you actionable steps to work towards, right? So one brick in the pyramid could be investing. And so there's the theory, like what is investing? Why should we invest? Why is this important? Uh, What are your past beliefs about investing? And why do you have them? Okay, great. Now that we've addressed all the weirdness and all the theory, how do you actually invest? The pyramid is based off of everything I learned, working as a financial planner, taking financial planning courses, Uh, working with clients. So it's a very practical, real world example of how people plan for their finances. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a pyramid, right? So the base is wider than the top and it's made of many bricks. And so let's look at the first level of the pyramid. There are a number of bricks there And one is weekly finance time. And I've found that when we're talking about personal finance, especially when we're talking about getting started, most people have no idea what the first step should be and often feel like that first step is going to be incredibly hard. So tell me what personal finance time is and why it's important to be kind of there at the beginning. So weekly finance time is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is a chunk of time that you dedicate every week to minding your finances. And I recommend no shorter than 20 minutes. I would say 20 minutes to an hour. If you're a freelancer, you might need to spend a little bit more time because you're going to have things that a regular non-freelancer isn't going to have. Like you're going to have bookkeeping and invoices and things like that. So I recommend setting a recurring event on your calendar or your planner, whatever it is, and blocking that off for weekly finance time. 
it's a way for you to take one step right now. Like if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're like, man, I know I need to get started. What can I do? You can, as you're listening to the words come out of my mouth into your ears, you can set up your weekly finance time. And so it's like the lowest hanging fruit that you can grab and you can actually take action. And once you start to commit to it, it's one of those things that really does compound. It really does pay dividends. And it feels, it. I always feel so silly to recommending this, but I realize that a lot of people just, they haven't created the space in their life to do this. And once you create space for something, it really does have the chance to really expand. Now, level two of the pyramid of financial awesomeness has a number of bricks. Get good at earning, plan for an emergency, automate savings, and make better decisions. I was interested in that make better decisions. That sounds a little amorphous. What do you mean by it exactly? Oh, man. So I believe that the quality of our lives is greatly determined by the quality of our decisions. Now, I'm looking at like the quality of our life when I say that. I'm kind of looking like that in a silo, right? Because, of course, there are circumstances that do impact our lives. But if we just want to look at the things that we can control that do impact our lives, the decisions that we make are huge. And since there is so much outside of our control, why wouldn't we really double-click on the things that we can control and try to control them really, really well. And so that's the idea behind making better decisions. There's a lot of, there's different ways to, to look at decision-making frameworks. And that's really what I want the reader to understand at the end of the day, that so much of this personal finance stuff, again, going back to the duality, the dichotomy of things, there's the side that we there's so much we can't see, right? Why are we making bad decisions? What's mo motivating those decisions? Is it because you were living in like a stress cycle for your whole life because you grew up in poverty and and since you're caught in a stress cycle, you are never actually making decisions using cognition. You're just reacting, reacting, reacting. Okay, once we uncover that, what's the actual framework for making decisions, right? How can we make decisions in a way where it's a process, where we're objectively, rationally, cognitively looking at all of our options and trying to understand the consequences. Um, so there's the state that we're in that's really important. And then there's the method for making decisions. That's also really important. You brought up, I think, when you talk about this, the idea that came from Stephen Covey's book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the concepts around circles of control versus circles of concern. Uh, and I find that's kind of important to this conversation we're having now, too. Yes, absolutely. There's so much that we could worry ourselves with in the world today, especially because information is traveling so fast. So much is changing so rapidly. And, you know, so many people are really worried about the state of the world. But we can still do things that have a larger impact while not, you know, being so stressed out about things that are outside of our control. Like we can't control what the market does. We can't control what Elon Musk is doing to the price of Twitter. We can't, or doing to Twitter itself, right? We can't control a lot. We can't control when the next recession is going to occur, how severe it's going to be, how long it's going to last. But we can control how we manage our financial lives so that we're not so fragile when those things inevitably happen.
I feel as we move up the layers of the pyramid of financial awesomeness, things get a touch more complicated. Level three talks about debt. We're going to pass that up and go to level four. The bricks are invest in the market, know your net worth, build wealth. Let's talk about investing. I mean, I feel like that's a place where many people get stuck. Why are we so afraid of investing? I think there's a lot of reasons why we're afraid of investing. The whole like vibe, the vibe of investing is is just weird, right? Like MSNBC, weird. Jim Cramer's show, weird. It's all weird. It's all very aggressive. It feels very white. It feels very male-dominated, very cisgendered white guy stuff. And they're saying weird stuff. They're saying price-to-earnings ratio. They're talking about weird stuff that people don't understand. So I think there's a tremendous amount of jargon that scares people. Um, my whole community are creative people. I love people who are creating culture. I love the weirdos who dream things up and make them exist into the world. And they've, they taught, they teach me a lot about what's weird about the finance world to them. And like fax machines are weird to them. An office is weird to them. So even those settings where like you go in to meet a financial planner and this guy is wearing a suit and and the website has like a sailboat and a watch, all of those things can be off-putting for people. I think when you're really in the finance industry, you might not see it. And that's kind of part of the beauty, I think, of my positioning in the market and the people that I hang out with and the people I'm choosing to speak to is I'm just showing them the same things, just putting a different t-shirt on it, right? I'm just like getting down to their level and explaining things in a less jargony way. So another reason why I think people are afraid of investing is this idea that it's gambling. There's no guarantee. You can lose all your money. There's so many damn options. Like when you go to allocate money to your 401k, it's just like a bunch of letters. How the hell are you supposed to navigate that? It all just feels very not for some people. And I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to show people that, yeah, they're doing it super weird. It's a lot of weird stuff going on. Some guy's yelling at the computer, some guy's yelling at the TV. It doesn't have to be like that. We can approach this in a different way. And last but not least, the apex of the pyramid, protect what you've got. Is this a step that many people skip? Because I feel like we don't talk about it very much, this idea of risk mitigation. Yeah, I think that risk mitigation and insurance is not sexy, right? Like <laughs> if you found yourself at a dinner party and maybe you wanted to get out of talking to somebody, you might say, let's talk about insurance. Or you might say, I sell insurance, whatever. It's just not a, it's not a sexy topic. But once you start to move up in the pyramid of financial awesomeness, once you have security, once you're building security, once you have cash, once you have investments, once you start to acquire things, you start to realize, oh, I could lose these things. And so that's why it's important to look at that. But yeah, I guess whoever's out there, whoever's listening in the insurance industry, please make it cooler, make it sexier, make it more interesting because it is certainly an important topic for people. And um, yeah, don't you agree? Don't you think it's kind of boring? I think it's boring and yet 
ultimately, once you figure out how to accrue wealth, it's the most important thing. And so as boring as it is, it's something I think we have to keep talking about because winning the game doesn't look like accruing more wealth. It doesn't look like having a higher net worth. Winning the game looks like having enough to survive in a good way and then risk mitigating for the rest of your life. And I think people don't understand that. So they don't understand insurance. They don't understand diversification truly. They don't get this idea that actually the the specific numbers don't matter as much as having what you need and then protecting it. Right. Yeah, I think it's such abstract thinking too because you're thinking about potential loss, right? You're thinking about layers of risk. You're thinking about uh, probability versus possibility and then severity. All of those things are these very abstract calculations that I think uh, the human brain has a difficult time trying to understand. It's kind of like you're riding a bike. Like when you're first starting on your financial journey, you're kind of riding this bike slowly. And then the better you get, the faster you ride. And you got to put a helmet on your head. Like the insurance is the helmet on your head once you reach like a certain velocity. Yeah. And, you know, I I totally connect with this idea that you mentioned in your book. We talked about earlier about that everyone kind of gets their shit sandwich. I say it a little bit differently, but I think it's the same ideas. None of us escape unscathed. And that's why I think risk mitigation is important, because no matter how good things are going, we're all going to have traumas throughout our life. Um, And that's why that's important. I want to pivot more to philosophy here for a moment. You know, on some level, the book asks an essential question that we haven't really been talking about very much in this conversation. But the question is, is investing unethical? And you do at one point in your book say it sure is. Tell me about how investing has an unethical aspect to it and why that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. The mechanism for how investing creates a return for its investors and its shareholders is unethical because it's extractive. So what you have happening is companies, workers inside of a company making money and the shareholders, the people who are owners of the company, they are extracting profit when the workers are the ones creating this, creating the profit, right? Of course, managers, of course, people who play a role higher up, sure, we need their money in order to start the company. But it does feel rather fucked up that so many workers are are the ones creating the wealth that then gets extracted, right? So we have that piece. We have this like idea that Wall Street, right, public companies, th- those companies... Wall Street demands that they grow every year, year over year over year. To what end, right? So the fact that even that idea is a very pervasive, normal idea within the investing world, that's unethical because that's runaway capitalism and it's bad for the planet, right? It is unethical, but do I think that people who do not have wealth, who are financially fragile, who are trying to become s- stable and safe, do I think that they should be conscientious objectors? No, I think that's a bad decision. And this goes back to our conversation earlier about how do you navigate this? How do you participate in something that is unethical? 
um, and feel okay with it? What are the steps that you're going to take to feel okay with that or to sit with that kind of dichotomy and the duality of that? Yeah, you mentioned this idea that investing and capitalism are based on all sorts of things, including colonialism and patriarchy. And you mentioned the idea, and I never really realized this, about the origin of Wall Street itself. So most of us know that the idea of Wall Street is trading stocks and bonds and kind of the business hub of our country is is personified by this idea of Wall Street. But what originally was Wall Street? They were trading, they were buying and selling humans labor slavery so not cool guys yeah i I think most people don't don't know that history yeah i mean it's it was fascinating writing this book because you know i am i'm curious but i've never had just like endless hours of like being able to justify doing a bunch of research on some of these topics so learning about wall street and its unsavory roots learning about how credit cards came into existence learning about how like modern marketing came into existence learning about how health insurance in america became tied to employment all of these things were really fascinating and at the end of the day it really does like learning about these things really does help support my original thesis that like we we should just know what's going on we should just have this information because Probably a lot of people who were not in power back then are going to be moving into power in the future. And just knowing how these started can help us kind of untangle or maybe not make those, you know, bad decisions in the future, right? Like we shouldn't just like let people make a buck off of everyone. Um, and now we, you know, and then now we have credit scores because of that. You know, it's um I think it's important to to understand the the atoms that make up the world of finance. Paco, the book is called The Finance for the People. Who are the people? Who is this written for? I wrote this book for anyone who feels underserved or ignored by the personal finance community. I want you to understand that you're smart enough. I know that some of you think I'm not smart enough. I'm not good at math. I just don't get it. It's not for me. It's absolutely for you. And when you read the book, you'll definitely feel that way. And this whole time, again, we've been talking about personal responsibility and change. But if you had a magic wand and could bring about any type of societal or political change, is there one thing you think that would really make things better if we changed kind of societally or politically? I'm super curious about what a universal basic income would do to our society. I am, too. And I don't have an answer of what it would do. (laughs) I'm sure it would not be like, you know, like so many things in life, it's not all good. Some bad will come of it, right? The path to hell, they say the path to hell is paved with good intentions. But, you know, when I started my company like seven or eight years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that now, I was able to draw unemployment. And I think that had a big impact on my ability to like freely move about the cabin, so to speak. I took a risk and it paid off. And I know that there's other countries, I'm sure it's like a Scandinavian countries, of course, where things like that are available for people who want to start businesses or create things. And at least, you know, the way that I view the world, the people that I tend to surround myself with, um, and even the people that I don't, I think net, 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 a universal basic income could help everybody feel a little bit less stressed 
and therefore make better financial decisions, make better decisions in general, be better to each other. And sure, maybe some people might, you know, what do they call it? Live off the dole. But you know what? We maybe we just take that for the for the good that comes with that kind of security and stability. Well, Paco, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. You know, there's this concept of when we know better, we do better. And certainly your book, Finance for the People, strives to set free this information so that we all can do better. Maybe this idea of universal basic income also fits into that idea that we can all thrive, know better, and improve our financial circumstances I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. So first and foremost, what is coming up next for Paco de Leon? I'm launching a podcast called Weird Finance. It'll be available on the internet on February 19th, 2023. Very cool. And what is the best way to reach out to you if people have questions? I think if you want to stay in touch with me, you should definitely sign up for my email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. It comes out every Wednesday, and you could find it if you just go to thehellyagroup.com. It's the first thing you see. Sign up for The Nerd Letter, and I'll email you. And if you ever want to email me back, you just hit reply. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Paco de Leon. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Awesome. I leave things running just for a few minutes just to record anything for the after show that we get just kind of off-the-cuff conversation. Um, I liked your book quite a bit. Like, I felt like it was a nice mix of telling people why you wrote it and how your experience is different and explaining why everyone's experience in lots of ways can be different. And then taking some of these financial con these financial concepts and making them digestible and palatable and helping people understand why they do what they do. Um, so I thought you did a really Thank good you. job of doing that. Thank you. That means a lot coming from a pro like you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd go so far as a pro, but um, <laughs> how, tell me about your experience with the book. Are you happy with it? Unhappy with it? Did you, Have you gotten lots of feedback? Has it been feeling good? It's been one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Um, I wrote it during the pandemic, so I came out of 2020 just being an asshole, right? People are like, how was your pandemic? <laughs> I watched all this TV and I'm like, I wrote a book. I'm a dick. <laughs> um, but the, you know, how this book came about to me feels very charmed. You know, I, I just started content marketing uh, like in 2016 because I literally Googled like how to do an online business. Like, okay, you have to do content marketing. That seems like a whole nother job, but like, let's, maybe it'll be good. And it kind of coincided with my friends annoying me. And by that, I mean, like, texting, should I start an S-Corp? Um, you know, like, asking me the same mundane questions. And I was like, this is good. The minute somebody texts me and I want to punch them, 
that is the next topic for the blog. So that's kind of, it started a little bit naturally in that way. And like I said, you know, somebody online was just like, my agent was just like, can I rep you? Do you have a book? And then right after I submitted, I submitted the proposal December 2019, fucked off to Paris, came back. I got on like 11 calls with 11 different publishers, eight bid. And the one that came out was the one I wanted, which was Emily Wonderlick at Penguin and Viking. And uh, we were off to the races. It was an incredible experience, but I think the further away I get from it, the more romantic it is because <laughs> it, it was certainly brutal. It was definitely, yeah. you know, sitting in a chair and and working on such a big problem for so long is excruciating. And this is very vulgar. And I apologize about who I am to even use this analogy but it's like for a year it's like you needed to take a shit and you never you never got the whole shit out you know mm -hmm. and you finally get it out and it's like you know it feels incredible I, I feel it's changed my life i mean uh to work in public or to put out something that's very public like that is it was really scary to do because you know i'm making a choice at the end of the day like okay i'm going to be a public person who works in public who thinks in public who shares ideas in public but I really feel like I'm meant to inspire people. I'm really meant to help as many people as I can find their power. And it just happens to be through personal finance. Yeah, people don't get it. You know, I've been blogging for years. I've been podcasting for quite a while, too. But writing a book is a whole different vulnerability. And I don't know how to explain it. Um, it's a whole different pain. It's a whole different kind of feeling like you're continuously working on something you can't get exactly right. Because if you care about what you're doing, it never actually, until hopefully the end where everything coalesces, it never quite feels like you've got it exactly right. Um, and, and it's hard to explain what that feels like to other people. Totally. And I think the finality of it is really scary because if I put, if I do something, if I like made an honest mistake on a blog post, right. Or something changes, like with, right, student loan, right? I wrote an article about student loan forgiveness. Okay, now it's in flux. Great. I can go on the blog post and, and edit it, update it. But with the book, there's this finality to it where it's like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> I definitely had that moment where, you know, it's like final pass or whatever, you know, you like mm -hmm. it's going to lock. You can't change more than 10% or literally the publisher will charge you. And I had this moment when that came through. I was like, oh, my God, am I going to ruin people's lives? Is this all right? <laughs> like... <laughs> it's a little scary yeah yeah it, it, it again there's something just very official about it yeah right tech moves fast so keep pace with the daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. with new episodes every day this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups new tech regulations and more Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, 
wherever you get your podcasts.